As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the first episode of March for Full Court with Fisher and Kay, and we saw one of the last undefeated teams in men's college basketball go down this weekend. That was Baylor, and all eyes are on the final conference games and the beginning of conference tournaments as the calendar has now turned to March. Yeah, Kara, how are we feeling on March 1st? Feels weird to be back in March. I know everyone's like, oh my gosh, we were just in March because, you know, all pretty much been in some sort of quarantine or lockdown or whatever since last March, but it's very exciting to have some postseason play in the future. Obviously, we did not get an NCAA tournament last year, men's or women's, so I think definitely fans of college basketball are hungry for some some postseason play and um, no better time of the year, in my opinion. Jenny, how are things in the bubble? Things in the bubble are good. We're nearing the end of our regular season right now as well. It's funny that it's it's lining up with college basketball in this way uh, because the championship is on March 11th and then Selection Sunday is March 14th and it just all kind of is rolled into one. And what I will say, again, I am a college basketball fan at heart. You all should know this by now if you are listening, but the G League is, is another great way. I mean, it's six games a day. It's been nonstop. And it's been high quality, great basketball um, and really fun as well. I actually put together a piece today. There were two guys from the Memphis Hustle who uh, are Murray State guys. So, of course, they love to bring up that Marquette loss, um, Marquette losing to them in the NCAA tournament. Uh, but they were good buddies with John Morant and just talking about their journeys and their time there. And so I still get a little bit of my college basketball fix in the G League, uh, especially with my three Marquette guys here as well. But it, it has been great, but you know what? March is made for college basketball. So let's talk about the men's AP poll. Still have Gonzaga at number one. That's not changing, but it is changing. We have a new number two this week. Um, Michigan slides up to that number two spot after Baylor lost. Baylor only moved down to number three. Um, we have Illinois and Iowa coming in at four and five. West Virginia at six. Ohio State at seven. They now have had three straight losses, I believe. Alabama checking in at eight, Houston at nine. We'll get to Houston a little bit later with our guest. And at number 10 is Villanova. So a couple changes, but nothing crazy heading into March. And I still like that Alabama team. Herb Herb Jones, excuse me, is very effective on both ends and they just won the SEC. And so I will be keeping my eye on Alabama. But on the women's side, we've got UConn at number one at the time of recording They are playing Marquette women's basketball, who just beat a top 25 team in DePaul this past week. At number two, we have Texas A&M. NC State is at three. And then Stanford and Louisville round out the top five. Then we follow with Baylor at six, South Carolina at seven, and then Maryland, UCLA, and Indiana. And Stanford did receive one vote uh, for the top spot, which I found interesting. On the men's side, we had an undefeated team go down. Baylor took their first loss of the season on Saturday night at Kansas, and it was on Kansas's senior night, so of course, very fitting. 
Uh, Baylor lost 71-58. It was their second game since coming off of their long COVID pause, and they just did not look good all night, Kara. A crazy stat I've seen floating around is that Kansas has now won 38 straight senior night games, which obviously there's a ton of emotion for senior night and they want to go out the right way. And in a normal year and you have the fans and the parents and extended family in the crowd, I'm sure that kind of helps, you know, but you're playing the, at the time, number two team in the country and they still found a way to keep that streak intact. So very impressive. Um, but on, for Kansas, we had David McCormick. He had 20 points um, leading the way for them. They had a lead at halftime, never trailed again, shot 51% from the field, out-rebounded Baylor 48 to 28, and maybe most impressive, held Baylor to a season low of 58 points and Jared Butler to a season low of five points. So just like you said, Baylor not really in sync all night, definitely weren't um, in the game before against Iowa State. Kansas definitely took advantage after the game, Baylor coach Scott Drew just basically said, we had three weeks where we got worse and they had three weeks where they got better, referring to Kansas. So Kansas now has seven wins over ranked opponents this season. That's the most in division one. They're tied with Iowa with that stat. Um, they had that stretch. We talked about them in mid to late January where they did lose three in a row at one point. And they also had losses sprinkled in there to Texas and Tennessee and West Virginia, but they've definitely shown improvement on the defensive end. They found that balance offensively and like a normal Kansas team shaping up to get a top seed in the NCAA tournament. Baylor now has a crazy week ahead. Um, they're trying to make up some of those games that they missed while they were on their pause. So they'll go to West Virginia on a Tuesday night. Definitely not an easy game. And then they'll be hosting Oklahoma State and Texas Tech on Thursday and Sunday, who are both NCAA tournament teams potentially. So really doesn't get any easier for Baylor down the stretch. On the Kansas side, they'll be finishing up conference play with that 12 and six record, um, but they added a game against UTEP that will be this week before they head to the Big 12 tournament. So just one more game left for them, but they're all done in the Big 12. I love that quote from Scott Drew, though we had three weeks where we got worse and they had three weeks where they got better solely because it really makes you think about fairness, which is something that our guest will definitely be able to attest to and how this year has definitely been strange in that way. But just... One last note on Baylor, how worried should they really be? Because they did have that shaky win over Iowa State, but then a respectable loss at Kansas, and then the three ranked opponents for this upcoming week. Are they back? Like, we know that they're back, but are they really back? I still wouldn't doubt this Baylor team. I mean, they were undefeated up until this point, which is very hard to do, um, COVID year or not. So I still have a lot of faith in them. Um, I think the West Virginia game on Tuesday night will be a huge test just to see if they can kind of bounce back from their first loss. I mean, they haven't had to do literally all year. So that will definitely be an indicator of, you know, where they're at, if they're able to withstand a game where they didn't play their best, maybe two games where they didn't play their best and, you know, round back into form. So that'll be one to keep our eyes on this week. We need to mention the COVID protocols for the men's and women's NCAA tournaments because some big news came out of the national office. Last week, the NCAA announced more protocols, including what could happen if a team who makes the field is not able to compete due to COVID issues. So to lay it out a little further, one of the most interesting notes is that if within 48 hours of the NCAA tournament field, if a team has a COVID issue and has to be removed from the field, they will be replaced with one of four at-large replacement teams and they will slide into whatever seed had to drop out and the bracket will not be reseeded. 
Those four teams will be named and seeded on Selection Sunday, which again is March 14th, and they would have the option of being one of the replacement teams, meaning that they would remain on campus and testing until they would need to go get to Indy and replace someone else. So it certainly creates an interesting dynamic of teams kind of waiting around to see if they really will slide into the tournament. Talk about being on the bubble, about being in the bubble. Um, I'm, and I know they're calling it a controlled environment and I'm not supposed to say bubble, but everyone's still gonna say bubble. And if a team has to drop out, uh, just where they would go. And that could obviously create chaos in the region of the bracket. Yeah, it's definitely going to be very interesting to see how that will work, if that will happen at all. I mean, you obviously hope if a team gets in um, on Selection Sunday, they'll be able to go and compete. So we'll have to see how that plays out because that could definitely be a crazy situation. Um, they also kind of laid out the rules for if there was a team that was an automatic qualifier from a conference and they had to drop out due to COVID protocols, then their league would determine a replacement for them. And that team would kind of slide up into their spot. Again, the bracket would not be reseeded. They don't want to deal with that. They're just going to slide that team in. Um, a big part of this is this all kind of has to happen within 48 hours of the original bracket being announced on Selection Sunday. So it has to happen by Tuesday night at 6 p.m. And if it's after that, the team is simply out of the tournament if they have an issue. Um, and the team they would have played will move on. The game will be considered a no contest. So assuming this is for, you know, travel and logistical reasons. Um, they did not, however, NCAA say what would happen if this was to happen in a Final Four situation or a national championship game. Um, I think everyone's kind of assuming that they would maybe, you know, uh, pause a little bit and see if they could get that team able to compete if they were in a Final Four situation, but they just really didn't lay out the protocol yet. So we'll wait to see. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but we'll wait to see if we need to um, see what would happen there. Some other news out of Indy, the NCAA Division I Women's Basketball Committee released their top 16 for the second time this season. The first one was back on February 15th, so we're just about two weeks removed. And there's just a few changes in their selections. The one seeds that they have laid out are UConn, Stanford, Texas A&M, and South Carolina. UConn officially won the Big East after going undefeated thus far in conference play. Stanford also won their conference, their first regular season Pac-12 title in the past seven years. Texas A&M won their first regular season title. They defeated South Carolina, another interesting tidbit, and slides into a number one seed spot over Louisville, who was in it the first time around, but they are now listed as number nine overall and the number one three seed. Also got some two seeds, um, NC State, Maryland, Arizona, and Baylor. Baylor won their 11th straight Big 12 regular season title, which is absolutely insane. They went... 14 and one in conference play. They slide up into that two spot after previously being, or two seed spot, excuse me, after previously being number 10 overall and a three seed. Three seeds are Louisville, UCLA, Georgia, and Indiana. Indiana and Maryland are still battling for the Big Ten title. They got a few conference games left this week. And rounding out the top 16, we have the four seeds, which would be Tennessee, Kentucky, Oregon, and Arkansas. Um, Arkansas makes the top 16 after previously not being in it. So. Ton to talk about with the NCAA tournament, a ton to talk about with teams on the bubble, the different metrics we use, um, what the NCAA selection committee uses in evaluating them, and we'll get to that next with our guest. Now we welcome on our guest, Kevin Pauga, Associate AD at Michigan State, creator of KPI and Factor, also my go-to on learning and understanding all things scheduling and metrics. Thank you for joining us today on March 1st, KP. Yeah, Kara, Jenny, good to be with you. 
Uh, so I tried to wrap up all what you do into your intro, um, but can you talk a little bit about first how you got to where you are doing what you're doing and then maybe about KPI, what that is as well as factor. Yeah, so I got my start as a basketball manager at Michigan State. Um, prior to that, even even in high school, I'd been a basketball manager and to coach Little League and all, all sorts of fun stuff that uh, that normal teenagers would obviously um, would obviously take part in. So I started as a basketball manager for four years, um, got hired as coaches as video coordinator um, for a couple of years, went and spent uh, what turned out to be uh, a year at the Big Ten Conference office uh, that was in Park Ridge at the time, and then uh, returned to East Lansing as Coach Izzo's director of ops, and now um, am on the administrative side. And in, in my sixth year, kind of that where I'm, I'm still kind of attached to Michigan State basketball in, uh, in, in some ways and to have a little bit more of a global responsibility relative to, to the Michigan State Athletic Department. So that's, that's kind of my day-to-day -day, um, in that sense. Um, my interest has always been in kind of the scheduling logic problem, analytical thought process that, uh, that goes into not just a day-to-day, -day, but also into to the sports side of things um, where I can kind of find the confluence of those, uh, of those, two, th those two things. Um, and I've been able to, to kind of find a niche that, uh, that, that I wonder sometimes if it's, if it's that I'm actually good at it or if it's that nobody else really wants to, to actually do any of it. And I just kind of get stuck with it. So um, it's, been, uh, it, it's been a lot of fun um, getting that all to, together. But uh, at least from a Michigan State perspective, that, uh, that's kind of my day to day. And then uh, on, the, on the analytics side, back, uh, dating back to when I was an undergrad student at, at MSU, um, I developed what uh, what is now KPI. Um, it's one of the results-based metrics that's part of the NCA team sheets. Um, there's six metrics that are part of the, the team sheets. Um, NET is the primary sorting tool, the NCA evaluation tool. Um, KPI and ESPN strength of record are on the results-based side, which are more how good is your resume. And then Ken Palm, Sagarin, and ESPN's BPI are on the more the predictive side, which is meant to measure kind of how good is your team. Um, so, so KPI is part of that process, um, and uh, and that uh, that's been an interesting experience as well over the over the last several years. You kind of alluded to it, but we hear a lot of buzzwords this time of year: RPI, strength of schedule, KPI wins above bubble net, all of it. Can you explain the differences between those metrics, uh, the results based, and then the predictive metrics? Yeah, so even though it, it, it seems like the, the messaging may get more, more clouded at times, I think that the NCA has tried to provide clarity as to, as to what that process is. Now, now, this particular year during a COVID season, where, where the data is a little bit, uh, uh, there, there's more outliers as part of the data, um, it's a little bit more complicated. But, but what the NCA did is they eliminated the RPI from the process. Um, the RPI was a metric that, was, that, that dated back to the early 1980s. Um, and frankly, it was it, it was a metric from simpler times where not as much data was available. Um, it was it, just just getting results. Um, I know that that's before both of your time, but uh, but you would uh, you would need to grab the newspaper and you would see that anything that started after nine or nine thirty Eastern would be marked as late. You'd have to wait for the next day's newspaper in order to to get a score. So um, so that was based primarily on wins and losses. Um, and what your opponent did relative to wins and losses. And, um, and it was intended to be simple. Um, we've got more availability to data for, for data now. Um, so why not use it? Why not take advantage of it? 
Um, and so the NCA three years ago went to went to a new sorting tool, which is the NCA evaluation tool. Um, it's intended to be a sorting tool. It's not an end all be all, um, but it's also intended to measure to better measure what the quality of a team is as opposed to a quality of a resume. The way that you gamed the RPI is to win games against teams who won games. And now the net is a little bit more accurate in terms of quantifying team quality. But, uh, but as, as folks uh, um, grow paranoid, um, and in some cases rightfully so, about where their net is or isn't or, or may come into play, um, you're, you're truly trying to build a resume off of playing net quality teams. Is what you're is what you're generally trying to do. So that's that's the great thing of now with the NCA having multiple metrics on the team sheet. They're sorting into quadrants um, based on based on net. Um, that's that's intended to basically say, hey, here's here's how many really good teams that you've played, and here's how many of you you've beat, and here's how many really bad teams that you've played, and here's how many of you you've, you've beat. To try and simplify it and provide some sort of visual, not just for for Joe Fan but for coaches, for administrators, for, for, um, for parents of student athletes, for student athletes, as well as the committee itself. Um, so there has been a little bit more consistency from year to year, the last few seasons. Um, but, uh, but certainly in a COVID year, there's going to, to be some instances that we haven't otherwise seen because some teams have played 15, 16, 17 games. while some have played 24, 25, 26. Before we get into talking about the net even more. You mentioned outliers and you just kind of mentioned some, but what are some of the outliers this year in a COVID year of college basketball? Yeah. So there's a, there's a few things that are working in into that. Um, the, the, the most straightforward um, are the teams that, uh, that haven't played as many games um, just from a simple math perspective. If, if in a normal year you'd play 30 games, each game would count for about 3% of your resume. Give or, give or take a, a, a few percentage points. This year, for a team that's only played 20, that number is up to 5% per game. For the team that's only played 12 or 15 games, um, that number is even smaller. So it puts a premium on certain results. And anytime that you're going to have two, three outlier results, if that's out of 12, that's a pretty significant um, amount of your resume that's a, that uh, is an outlier. So what we're, where we're seeing outliers come into play are teams that haven't played a lot of games, teams that have extreme results against teams that, uh, that haven't played as many games. And then the third one is teams that have been on pause and come back or have played numerous teams that have been on pause. Um, there's, there's certainly some teams that, uh, that have been less affected, not just by um, postponements and whatnot, but, uh, but they've played games against a bunch of teams that have also kept playing games. Whereas some other teams have had layoffs of two to three weeks and we've got numerous examples of, uh, of results when teams came back across the landscape um, where the expected score on something was a 5-7, 10-point game, and it was a 30-, 40-point game. Um, and those are, those are skewing the data, data points. So what, what's actually going to happen in the end run, that's, that doesn't mean that the 30th-ranked team is inadvertently ranked 120th. We're not talking about that level of extreme outlier. Um, but instead of it being five, seven, 10 spots max in terms of overall outliers, we may see that expanded for, uh, for, for a few teams in this particular season. Talk a little bit about a net, about the net. It's obviously a hot topic. Um, in its third season of use, what are some of the tweaks and modifications NCAA has done for this version? 
Yeah. So the NCA, this, this is kind of net 2.0. Um, there was an original, there was a, an original net formula that uh, that incorporated what they called the team value index, which is kind of the results based side of things, um, as well as uh, some efficiency numbers. And then they got into um, some more detailed numbers in terms of some efficiency caps and some location uh, adjustments that, that came into play. Um, and and those those things those those last few things that I mentioned, those are no longer part of the equation. Um, instead, it's a, it's a two-part dynamic, um, a team value index that all encapsulates um, the location of a game, the difficulty of beating a, beating a team. It's kind of the, re the resume part. Um, and then there's an adjusted efficiency part that, uh, that, that also comes into play. So um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, um, they're trying to measure the quality of a team, not just based on an efficiency standpoint, but also in try and capture that, uh, that difference between winning and losing so that the team that's really good at winning a lot of close games is bumped up a little bit. And a team that's, uh, that's really bad about winning close games may be bumped down a little bit as an example. Houston is ranked number nine in the AP poll this week, but number four in the net as of Monday morning. And then Colgate is number nine in the net, but nowhere near the top 25. Can you explain some of those differences that we see? Yeah, so let's let's take Houston first. And uh, from a from an AP poll perspective, what tends to happen, um, and this is both media and coaches, is uh, voters kind of by default move teams up if they or they move teams down if they lose, and then they kind of decide, hey, this team's ranked tenth. I think I'll move them down about four spots, and then eleven through fourteen, I'll move up a spot. Like that. That's kind of the way that you move up in the in the human polls for the most part. There's some exceptions. Um, but that's kind of the mindset generally that's that's taken place in those polls. And there's some group think that comes into that just by the nature of how they're calculated. Um, but uh, but in 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 some ways, in a good way, the, the the polls don't really have a whole lot to do with it because um, because that's kind of what happens is that teams kind of move up or down just based on what they do in a given week. It's weekly as opposed to daily. So there's um, there's there's some things that just that just happen there. Um, Houston's one with some really good efficiency numbers, not quite as good of a resume. Um, and some of that is, uh, is just based on the, the, the schedule that they play, but they've won a whole lot of games. And so um, clearly they're going to be in, they're, they're going to be in the tournament um, and they're going to be, um, they're going to be a high seed. Um, but, uh, but it's going to be kind of interesting that uh, that's going to be a, an example right off the top of a team that, uh, that doesn't have a whole lot of high quadrant wins has some really good efficiency numbers, which correlates a little bit more to seeding. Um, and uh, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where the committee lands kind of trying to find the midpoint between the two. Um, relative to, to Colgate, um, Colgate, um, look, here, here's what we know about Colgate is that they have played three different Patriot League teams four times each. And they're 11 and one in those games. And the way that the Patriot League set up their schedule, Army and Navy played non-conference. The remaining eight schools did not play non-conference. So there was nothing for those eight teams to capture outside of their bubble um, other than Army and Navy's non-conference games. That uh, and, and I think that they played eight or nine total between the two of them. So beyond that, the Patriot League also regionalized parts of their schedule. So they had some schools within their own conference that they were playing multiple times while some other schools they weren't playing at all, which is how you end up with Colgate schedule. So what was always gonna happen with any league that played limited or no non-conference, it was kind of an accordion effect. And if you had some level of parity within the league, you were gonna have teams that were kind of bunched up closer toward the middle 
of the uh, of the overall metric like a net um, type metric. Instead, what's happened in the Patriot League is Colgate and Navy both have kind of emerged from the pack and separated themselves. And so Colgate has done that with by winning 11 games and being pretty doggone efficient about it. Um, and so Net has no idea how Colgate compares to any other teams around them. And look, there's there's obviously an outlier perception to, to Colgate because traditionally the Patriot League doesn't have a team that's that's ranked that high. When the truth is, in this current season, all we know is that Colgate is significantly better than the three teams that they've played and that their efficiency is really, really good. And that that Patriot League um, overlay is like overlaying oil on top of an entire ecosystem of water. And we really don't know how the two of them talk to each other. And in fact, we're probably never going to know how they're going to talk to each other because even when the Patriot League gets their team into the NCAA tournament, are we really going to judge the quality of that team based on one result in the, in a first round game? Not sure that we should. So it kind of compares for me. um, There was a Wichita state team um, several years ago that went undefeated and clearly they were really, really good. They were a number one seed. They ultimately lost to Kentucky who was an eight seed in the second, in the second round. And what we were able to glean from all that was look, Wichita state was really, really good. But at the end of the day, we're never going to know quite how good they were because it's not also not fair to evaluate them as around a 32 team based on one one result. So we have to remember that uh, that we're we're seeding and selecting based on in a normal year about 30 games. You're you're seeing less than 10 percent of Division One teams um, to be able to to capture a resume, um, and that's that's not a lot. We're seeing even less now. As of this morning, Monday morning, Illinois is a leader in quad one wins with eight. Um, can you kind of break down quad one, two, three wins and losses, what that means and how they're used to evaluate a team's resume? Yeah, so what, what happens with quad one, quad one is uh, top 30 games at home, top 50 games on a neutral site, and top 75 games on the road. And what that's, what that's intended to do is it's intended to take kind of the old top 50, top 100, top 200 system and adjust for the location of the game. So that it's statistically speaking, um, winning against number 30 at home in a normal year is about the same as beating 75 on the road. And there's some, there's some math behind that. It's not something that's just pulled out of, out of thin air um, as, to, as to about what the difference is between winning at uh, different locations. So what, uh, what, what the NCAA has done is as a sorting tool, so on the team sheets, which are the, the sheets that, uh, um, that the committee uses, there's one sheet per team and it lists all this information on that particular team, who they played, what their numbers are, um, kind of, it, it, it's, it's a resume. It, it's literally no different than when you would apply for a job and, and uh, put forward a, a, a resume. Um, that's what goes before the committee. And those quadrants are ways to essentially sort the games played into four columns in such a way where visually you can kind of see what's, uh, what's going on with, uh, with, with wins and losses. So scheduling and rescheduling has been very important this year. <laughs> and we talked about some of the outliers with COVID and whatnot, but I want to talk about the weird resumes. There are some teams with big wins combined with really bad losses. Can you talk about maybe one of those teams that stick out to you and how they'll be evaluated on the resume as a whole, like Georgia Tech, Minnesota, Maryland, are just a few that come to mind. Yeah, I think that that's 
frankly, what uh, what's causing some discomfort um, more so this year among coaches and teams is that uh, we really don't have anything compare to anything to compare this data set to. And, uh, and, and ultimately, the committee's going on record, and it makes sense that, uh, that they can only evaluate based on the data that's in front of them. Um, and that's kind of where I get to um, that, uh, that if you play 20 games, each game's going to count about 5%. Um, if, you play about, if you play 10 games, each game's going to count about 10%. And that's the fairest way to, to do it in this year. So, so really, the, the, the benefit that comes with playing more games is that it increases your margin of error. Um, in terms of building an overall uh, an overall resume, we knew coming into this year that this season wasn't going to be fair. That different teams were going to be put into different positions based on different scheduling things. Some were within their control. Some were nowhere close to their control. We're going to have conference champions that are going to be determined um, by the number of games played, by who played who. Um, that was always going to be part of part of this season, um, but. But, uh, but overall, we've gotten a lot of games played, a lot of games played. And to, to, to get as many in as, uh, as uh, we collectively have as a sport is a testament to the, to the coaches and players for, for getting that done. Um, but in the same sense, based on what we would normally, we'd normally have about 2,000 non-conference games where we're cross-pollinating teams and all that. Um, and this year, we got about 800. So we're, we're missing about 60% to the overall non-conference inventory to really give us more accurate data. Over the weekend, we had Loyola Chicago win the Missouri Valley regular season conference title outright. They went 21 and four overall, 16 and two in the conference. One of those losses came to Drake, who was one of the Valley favorites. Um, they're now down a couple of players due to injury. They split this past weekend with Bradley. Do you see a way that the Valley gets more than one team in the NCAA tournament? And what are some of those maybe scenarios during Arch Madness coming up this week? Yeah, so I think I, I think that this is an interesting case um, because um, the highest concentration of games for for the Missouri Valley came against one another. Um, Loyola Chicago, in particular, missed uh, missed some non-conference games early. They were able to to get a game in against Wisconsin um, that uh, that they lost up in up in Madison. But uh, but the crux of uh, of the league is uh, is really within itself. So what happens is Loyola, Loyola and Drake split um, and, uh, and Loyola's efficiency numbers, Loyola's team quality, if you want to judge that based on efficiency, um, is pretty darn good because they're one of the best defensive teams in the, in, in the country. Now, again, we're dealing with numbers that, uh, that may have a little bit more outlier to them um, because there's limited, there's limited crossover, but that is regardless of, uh, of how you want to compare it, bottom line is Loyola Chicago has been excellent defensively. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately that's something that, uh, that will be considered. But, uh, but traditionally in a normal year, um, you have to have something on your resume to hang your hat on in order to, to earn your way into the, in, into the tournament. And that's where from a Valley perspective, um, the split between Loyola and Drake gives each one of those teams a win against, uh, against the other um, and, uh, and helps a little bit, but, uh, um, but how that tournament plays out is going to be really interesting, particularly if one of those two teams does not make the final on Sunday. Kevin, there's been a ton of talk about the teams at the top. I feel like I've heard about Gonzaga every single week since the beginning of the season, we got, 
the Michigans, the Baylors, but then there's a bunch of teams on the bubble, of course, and Duke, Michigan State, Indiana all come to mind. But what else should we know about the teams that are in the middle that have been maybe a little lost or forgotten about, just not talked about as much, um, just what they've done to set themselves up to be in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, you're right that uh, that those teams in the middle sometimes get lost because uh, everybody wants to talk about the top seeds and everybody wants to talk about who's getting in. But those teams that are that are clearly in, but kind of stuck in that middle, are just kind of floating, if you will. And uh, and, and what's what's really critical there um, is you're playing for seeding, um, and uh, and in this year you're not playing for geography because everybody's going to Indianapolis. In a normal year, you might be playing for for some for, for some location that's, that's close to home where you where from a logistic standpoint, your team might be able to bus, your fans might be able to be more apt to, to attend. Um, from a mathematical perspective, that's why oftentimes a lot of those first, second round sites that are out West host fourth and fifth seeded teams, because those teams above them, there's, there's just more teams that are, that are um, East of the Mississippi, frankly. Um, and so by virtue of that, um, you tend to have the, the teams that are left at the end of that top 16 um, end up out West just because you've got the Pac-12, you've got Gonzaga, um, you've got the Mountain West on occasion that, uh, that has some of those top seeds, but in a, in, in a normal year, you, you don't necessarily. Um, the other thing that, that, that comes with seeding is that first round matchup. The reason, the reason why the, the 5-12 matchup and in recent years, the 4-13 matchup has kind of joined this because of um, the expansion to a 68 team field. The reason for that is because that, that 12 seed is traditionally the best of the non it's the best of the, of the automatic qualifier teams that weren't quite good enough to get an at large bid for whatever reason, whether it was um, just what, what, why, why ever. Um, but that best group is usually on the 12 line. And, and is that team good enough to beat about a top 20 team? Math has, uh, has shown over time that they, that they often are. And so when you're taking a, almost assuredly a conference champion in a pretty de decent league and putting them on the 12 line, that can be a pretty scary proposition, sometimes even to the point where you might be better off being a seven, a, 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 like a seven seed um, to, to make something like that happen. Um, the opposite approach to that is that uh, depending on the season, maybe it's Gonzaga that you want to avoid, or maybe maybe the, those one seeds, uh, Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, all come to mind. Um, maybe that's good reason to to make sure you're staying out of that eight nine. Try you got to try and get up to that six seven seed line so that you're on the opposite side of the bracket and you've got a better chance to to um, make some noise on your half of the bracket. So there's a lot of math to that, um, but but in the end run. Um, there's two ways to push through a bracket. One is to plow your own way through um, with a bracket that, uh, that where seeds hold. The other, the other is to get some help along the way. And we've seen teams make final fours um, both ways. One last question before we wrap. I've taken up a ton of your time. Thank you. Um, in the last couple of days, NCAA announced kind of the protocol for if within 48 hours, a team has to drop out of the NCAA tournament, you kind of said, you know, we knew this wasn't going to be a fair year. Teams are going to get different amounts of games in. So your thoughts just on that pro protocol and procedure they put in place. Yeah, I, I think that everybody's doing the best that they can to maximize that the most number of teams and the most number of players will be able to participate um, as though 
um, as though things are quote unquote normal. Um, but, but, uh, as we've seen all season long, um, to guarantee that with hundred percent certainty is frankly impossible. Um, so what's being done makes a lot of sense, um, in, in the, with, with the mindset that, uh, that to try to make it as fair as possible. Um, you brought up relative to replacement teams. The, the intention is that, uh, um, the committee will go with, uh, with what they believe to be true for the selection show on, uh, on that Sunday night. Um, and then uh, teams will immediately head to Indianapolis. Some of them that get their AQ will actually go to Indianapolis in advance of the selection show since they know that they're going to be taking part. Um, and that 48-hour window from Sunday night to Tuesday night, um, that's, that's where, where everybody's arriving in Indianapolis doing those, those, first, uh, those first tests. I'd like to think that it's unlikely that an entire team would get knocked out in that 48-hour period. There would need to be significant um, issues within that, uh, within that team. Um, but the contingency plans make sense to the extent possible. There's going to be a couple teams that, um, essentially are going to be kind of your first four out on standby. Um, and those teams will, will be available to, to fill the place of the bracket if that becomes necessary. But, uh, um, I, I think that everybody kind of hopes that, uh, that that's not necessary, um, for all sorts of reasons, because ultimately the teams that earn their way in with those 68 spots are, hopefully going to be the ones that uh, eventually participate. I have two more very quick questions because I would feel remiss to leave and not ask. First one, what was your major in college? Was it math or what was it? So I started as a computer science major and uh, I graduated with a degree in journalism. We love a good journalism you, you major. You did that not was, see that coming, did that you? That was me as well. But yes, I, I definitely different paths from our journalism uh, majors. But very last one, you had mentioned earlier, we were talking about the AP poll and the net and comparing the two in Colgate and Houston. Do we still need human polls? Like what is the purpose for them and why do we need them still? So, so the argument for the human polls is um, that, that by whether it's a human poll or a committee, or or whatever that uh, whatever that may be, um, that it's a it's a trap door to eliminate outliers that are just so obvious. So that that's kind of why the committee is uh, has continued not just in basketball but across a lot of college sports. This is different than pro sports in the sense that in the NFL you've got 32 teams. It's a lot easier to compare 32 teams to one another than it is in basketball to compare 350 teams to another. It's, it's very common for me to be compared to, against your team, let's say. And not only have we not played, but we might not have a single common opponent. And maybe we're, we're two degrees away. I mean, we're all probably six degrees of Kevin Bacon away, but, uh, but I, I'm not sure that we can get to all the way to that point. The other problem with going to a full mathematical system to determine um, to determine who makes the tournament and, or how it, how it's seated, um, is getting everybody to agree on the formula. So from that perspective, um, look, there, there's always disagreement. Um, the disagreement I don't think is extreme in nature. Um, but Hey, this team's a nine seed and maybe they should have been a 10, like, like that type of disagreement, um, happens. Um, but to have a full blown mathematical system would mean that we would have to agree on it first. And uh, I'm, uh, I, I've got some ideas on it. And uh, I think that you, you brought up kind of wins above bubble and strength of record. I, I, I don't want to give all, all, all my uh, uh, answers away, but uh, 
I think that, uh, that the truthful answer is, uh, is somewhere between where KPI is and where strength of record wins above bubble, kind of those res, those, those linear, more, more linear resume tools come into play, both have value. Um, but, uh, but if I put 10 coaches in, in, in a room from 10 different, uh, 10 different conferences with 10 different perspectives, um, I'll promise you that I cannot get unanimous agreement among them. Well, KP, I'm sure I'll have a thousand more questions for you tomorrow. So thank you for answering all of ours today and for giving us a better understanding. Much appreciated. I'll be ready. It's been a pleasure to, to join you. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Sounds thank good. You. Thank you. Thank you again to Kevin for joining us, talking us through all of those metrics, scheduling, everything that's been going on this year. It's obviously been crazy. Jenny, I know our team's had a crazy last week. Michigan State was able to beat Illinois and Ohio State at home. Went on the road to lose at Maryland, but still a pretty good week overall. And a game you were fired up about, Marquette and Carolina, and Marquette got the win. Yes, but again, this goes to Kevin's point. Teams, like, they first prove that they're, like, pretty good with a big win, and then all of a sudden they're following them with these huge losses, and you're like, what do I make of this? So Marquette beats North Carolina and then uses to UConn, which I get it. UConn's, like, a, a decent team. Their first year in the Big East, and they've been doing really well. But then North Carolina, they had just beaten Louisville, uh, and then all of a sudden they go on and they beat Florida State, who was ranked as well. And you're thinking, is North Carolina a good team or not? And did Marquette beat a good team or not? Um, and so it's really, it's just a confusing time. As a Marquette fan, I'm confused. Uh, their next game is against DePaul. And that is always the most anxiety ridden game on my calendar because it always tends to be one of the last Big East regular season games of the year. And always the dagger for Marquette when they, I'm sorry to say it, when they ever so often happen to lose because uh, DePaul, obviously one of the worst teams in the league, if not always the worst team in the league. And so Marquette always kind of has found a way to lose to them. And if the Blue Demons get it again, I guess I'm just going to have to deal with it, but it's fine. And of course, this is the perfect tie-in because we had some NIT news today. Uh, they had decided to downsize to 16 teams the entire tournament will now be down in Texas and the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And a fun note, Texas is actually the defending champs back from 2019 uh, because obviously in 2020 uh, it was not held. And so they will not be at MSG. They will be down in the great state of Texas. Conference play now officially wraps up this coming week. Tournament season is in full swing. We even had some um, already start which means obviously tons of games for us to keep our eye on this week. Uh, one that we talked about is a huge game in the Big 12 on Tuesday. Baylor tra travels to West Virginia, trying to recoup after their loss to Kansas over the weekend. A highly anticipated matchup between Michigan and Illinois that was rescheduled after being postponed in February when Michigan went on their um, campus COVID pause. Um, that will be also on Tuesday. In the Big East on Wednesday night, it's Creighton and Villanova. Villanova looking to get a win after Creighton beating them earlier in this season. And finally on Sunday, Wisconsin and Iowa face off in what will be Luca Garza's last regular season college game. And I also have to mention Michigan and Michigan State this week, twice in four days to end the Big Ten season. Um, in the last couple of years, the Big Ten's always been ending um, for Michigan and Michigan State playing each other, which is kind of fun. 
Um, we also have the Missouri Valley Conference tournament kicking off this week. So we'll keep our eye on Loyal Chicago and Drake to see what happens there. And other conference tournaments like the Atlantic 10, Patriot League, West Coast Conference, among others, all getting started this week. Yeah, and I especially will be looking at the Patriot League and Colgate again, because how interesting would it be a team that is that high in the net, um, you know, if something were to happen and they were to falter a little bit. But on the women's side, we have a lot of conference tournaments taking place as well. The SEC, the Pac-12, a lot going on this Thursday. Kentucky and Arkansas will play in the second round of the SEC tournament. And then Oregon, Stanford, UCLA, and Arizona will all have games in the Pac-12 tournament that day. We'll also have action in the ACC all weekend. Louisville and NC State will kick things off on Friday with quarterfinal play, which again, a great matchup. And that will be uh, to determine who they will each face and tons of other conference tournament action, including the Mountain West, SOCON, and the America East. For our final four this week, we wanna talk top four seeds in men's and women's college basketball. And I think it's, it's kind of clear cut on the men's side, maybe minus one. On the women's, it feels a little more interesting. Uh, so do both South Carolina and Texas A&M get one seeds or does the ACC champ get one? So far from the, the top 16 reveal from the NCAA Women's College Basketball Committee, uh, they've got UConn, Stanford, Stanford, Texas A&M, and South Carolina. And honestly, I feel like South Carolina deserves that one seed. Um, excuse me, one of the top four seats, because they've just been, I mean, even in a year where it doesn't feel like they're as dominant as years past, they have been impressive. Again, I, I've harped on this podcast about it before. Don Staley, I trust in Don Staley. I trust in what that team can do, especially in March, especially when it matters underneath her leadership uh, and in the year that they are having. So I would just say that I would stick with those four for now. Obviously, we still have time for things to shake up a little less on the women's side. Selection Monday, not too far away for them. So we'll have to wait and see what happens, but it it definitely will be interesting, and I can't wait to find out the field. That is very interesting. It'll be interesting to see if that holds or what will happen, you know, depending on conference tournament play as well. On the men's side for the top four seeds, kind of been assumed for the last couple of weeks I'd say that it's going to be Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan in some order. Um, we'll see how Baylor and Michigan can kind of wrap up their seasons and Gonzaga can win their conference tournament. Um, the fourth spot is where there's a little bit of a question. I'm going to go right now with Illinois. I think that they still have a ton of talent. They still have a high ceiling. Um, I will be very interested to see how the Big Ten tournament goes next week. You know, if Michigan doesn't win that, does the winner maybe get that last um, number one seed in the NCAA tournament? Obviously, a ton of factors going into that, but kind of don't know right now between Illinois, Iowa, Ohio State, who's the second best team in the Big Ten and therefore could be in play for that last number one seed. Yeah, so Kara, we obviously talked to Kevin about do we still need human polls and honestly, we don't have anyone checking these things. Like I would love like a, you know how there's a freezing cold takes Twitter account. I would love if someone checked how accurate people were on their own polls. Cause I know that we check the computers. We check the, the data and the science and make sure that it's right. Who's checking the people and who's making sure that, Hey, you know, the top 16 seeds that we picked last year were all accurate or this was the difference. So that's what I want to see. I don't want to put in the work. Kevin maybe would because he said that he's one of the only people that likes to do this this kind of thing. So maybe that is his next venture. 
because it's not mine. <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds like a lot of collecting maybe random tweets, random articles people have written. Um, like definitely people, you know, go on podcasts or go on TV as well and have their opinions. So a lot of data would have to be collected, but definitely would be interested to see, you know, how it lines up. I know we're talking about top four seeds. A lot of people didn't say see Michigan or Ohio State maybe on the men's side. Uh potentially looking at number one seeds. So be interested to look, look back and see what everyone thought. And with that, we are full speed ahead into the rest of March. Another episode of Full Court with Fisher and Kay is in the books. Thanks to Kevin Palga for joining us and spending some time. Thanks also to our producer, Mike Lieber, as well as Bruce Bernstein for all of their help. Kristen Woolley edits the show and we appreciate all of her contributions. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. Touch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong drops each Wednesday. Each Thursday, Monica McNutt and Kim McClure drop by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Every Friday is the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Mike Wise Show drops each Monday, and we'll be back every Tuesday with Full Court. Please check out all of our shows, subscribe, download them, rate and review them, and most of all, enjoy. See you next week on Full Court with Fisher and Kay. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.